outrageous couples. You know, the Bible is filled with them. Samson and Delilah, Solomon and the Shulamite, Jacob and Leah. On this week's edition of The Land and the Book, we're going to meet some of these outrageous couples. And as we study their lives, we'll discover where they went wrong and where they went right, how it all fits into the land, plus warning signs for our own relationships. Join Dr. Charlie Dyer and yours truly now as we embark on this week's edition of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, if we haven't met, and our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is an Old Testament scholar a guy who's traveled to the Holy Land a gazillion times. Welcome back, Charlie. John, thank you. It's always good to be back with you. Well, this coming Thursday is Yom Kippur, the holiest day on the Hebrew calendar. And today is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, a day burned into America's collective memory, of course. It was the events of that day that ultimately took U.S. forces into Afghanistan, where they remained for 20 years. Yet even after all that time, many are still confused about the different groups that we were fighting there. Help us understand the differences between the Taliban, al-Qaeda, ISIS, and now ISIS-K. Yeah, you feel like you're at a sporting event and you need to know the program to know one person from another or one group from another on this one. But let me start with the Taliban. They were part of the Afghan freedom fighters who opposed Russia when they invaded Afghanistan back in the 1980s. They were led by a guy named Mohammed Omar. And by the way, the word Taliban means student. He had his fighters study a strict form of Islam. Now, following Russia's withdrawal, Afghanistan disintegrated into areas ruled by competing warlords, but the Taliban under Omar eventually united all of Afghanistan. By the way, one of the students who pledged loyalty to him back then was a guy named Osama bin Laden. Hmm. Well, following the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990, U.S. forces entered Saudi Arabia to help stop Saddam Hussein and drive him from Kuwait. That's how we remember it. But to bin Laden, this was just like the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. Only this time he saw us invading Saudi Arabia, home to Islam's two holiest cities, Mecca and Medina. Bin Laden set up his own training camp in Afghanistan to raise up warriors to drive out the Americans. He named it the base, which in Arabic is Al-Qaeda. After 9-11, we invaded Afghanistan because the Taliban refused to hand over bin Laden. Well, once he went into hiding... Al-Qaeda, his group, adopted a different method of operation. In essence, they went into franchising. Uh, They set up different uh, branches of Al-Qaeda in different countries. One of the most successful was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. The eventual ruler of that franchise was Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Eventually, he attempted a hostile takeover of Al-Qaeda in Syria. The leadership of Al-Qaeda refused, and the two groups, Al-Qaeda and Baghdadi's group, officially split, with Baghdadi's group becoming ISIS the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Now, ISIS-K was responsible for the recent Kabul airport bombing, and that refers to the Islamic State in the Khorasan province. It's actually an official offshoot of ISIS that's been operating in Afghanistan. So how do all these groups fit together? Well, they all hold a similar strict interpretation of Sunni Islam, and they want to impose Sharia law. The difference between them is the Taliban want to rule Afghanistan. They're willing to cooperate with Iran, even though that's a Shiite nation, because they need Iran's oil and other help. In that sense, they're more pragmatic. Al-Qaeda has pledged loyalty to the Taliban, though they're more focused on driving the U.S. out of the Middle East and on destroying Israel. ISIS and ISIS-K, well, they're focused on establishing a worldwide Islamic caliphate. 
Uh, they also believe the Shiites aren't true Muslims. In fact, they want to destroy them as well as the West. And that's why we're all so confused, because there's so many different moving parts, John. Well, that is confusing, but that's helpful, Charlie. Thank you for that explanation. Story number two, the impact of the U.S. departure from Afghanistan continues to ripple across the Middle East. What are some of the results that haven't necessarily been covered extensively by the media, but that are changing the dynamics of the region? Yeah, the perception in much of the Middle East right now is that the U.S. has experienced another Vietnam. We're pulling back and we're not going to play a significant role in the Middle East in the coming years. What's unknown is who or what will replace the U.S. Now, examples, Egypt, Jordan, and the Palestinians held a summit to coordinate plans in advance of next month's meeting of the U.N. General Assembly. They declared that the quartet, and that would be the European Union, Russia, the United Nations, and the U.S., need to lead future peace talks in the Middle East rather than having the U.S. alone lead those efforts. Now, that would put great pressure on Israel to be the one to make all the concessions in any negotiations. Russia, Iran, and Turkey believe they each have an opportunity to fill the power vacuum left by our departure. And amid all the focus on Afghanistan, for example, most didn't notice that Russian forces entered the last rebel bastion in the south of Syria. That's where the rebellion against Syrian President Assad first began. Hmm. Rebel forces there had been fighting Syrian forces for the past two months this summer, and yet Russia's takeover received almost no press coverage. It places Russian and Syrian forces firmly in control of southern Syria. Iran's also interested in the area. You know, Israel's been opposing an Iranian presence there, but it's unclear how those Russian troops in the region will impact Israel's ability to hold back Iran's encroachment. John, the way I'd say it is nature abhors a vacuum, and the same's true politically and militarily. As the U.S. backs away from leadership in the region, we're seeing other countries rush in to try to shape the area in their image. And that image isn't beneficial to Israel. Thankfully, God is still in control. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, a weekly broadcast that's something of a flyover of the Middle East. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, Middle East authority. Story number three, a tiny stone weight used on a merchant scale during the first temple period has been discovered in Jerusalem. What's the significance of this rather diminutive find? And Charlie, I have to ask, in a land that is brimming with stones, how do they know this was the stone used in the first temple period? Ah, uh, the stone not only had a unique shape, but it had uh, two incised lines on it that let them know that it was a stone weight. It was actually a two gera stone weight. Uh, a gera is the smallest unit of weight in Old Testament times. In fact, 20 geras made one shekel. So this was one-tenth of a shekel. It's just a tiny little stone with those markings. But two things make it significant. Uh, first, it was discovered in Jerusalem. Until now, only one other weight like this had ever been found in all Israel. And second, the most important perhaps, the weight was false. A two-gera weight should come in about uh, just under one gram. But when this weight was put on a scale, it was found to weigh over three and a half grams. Almost, but not quite, four times the official weight. A merchant would put this weight on one side of a scale, and then the customer would put silver or gold on the other side until the scales balanced out. In essence, whoever owned this weight was overcharging the customers by nearly four times the agreed-upon amount. Hmm. 
it actually helps illustrate several passages in the Bible. Uh, For example, in Deuteronomy 25, God commanded, do not have two different weights in your bag, one heavy and one light. And in Ezekiel 45, God interrupts the description of the future kingdom by saying, you're to use accurate scales. And then he goes on and says, the shekel is to consist of 20 geras. In other words, in the coming messianic kingdom, people will use accurate scales and accurate weights. Dishonesty won't be allowed. Now, this tiny discovery is a reminder that from the time of the Exodus, throughout Israel's history, sadly, even up to today in Israel, our country, and around the world, people have a tendency to cheat in business. Hmm. And God has said in his word, he doesn't like cheaters. Well, a less publicized but very serious threat to our world right now is the alarming decline in honeybees. But an Israeli startup company called BeeWise is combining artificial intelligence and robotics to save the global bee population. Charlie, I can't resist asking, what's the buzz on this latest innovation coming out of Amazing Israel? Uh, This one is, uh, maybe I would say it really is sweet. Uh, Most people aren't aware of the serious worldwide decline in honeybees. One example, between April 2020 and April 2021, U.S. beekeepers lost an estimated 45% of their managed honeybee colonies. Hmm. Almost 90% of the world's flowering plant species depend on animal pollination and about 75% of the world's food crop. And that makes this Israeli startup, BeeWise, so significant. The company's developed an automated autonomous beehive that they're calling, I love it, Bee Home, B-E-E-H-O-M-E. It's a solar-powered container that houses up to 24 bee colonies and cares for them around the clock. It can control climate and humidity, detect and eliminate pests and parasites, identify when a colony's preparing to swarm, and send out alerts when human interventions needed, and it can even harvest the honey the bees produce. The converted cargo container houses 12 colonies on each side with the robotic system in the center. Now, it was founded in 2018 and are now preparing to move into the North American market. John, let's hope this great use of artificial intelligence and robotics will help restore the bee population in our country and around the world. You might say it it sounds like they did come up with a honey of an idea. Well, I think they did. And that's a look at today's current events segment here on The Land and the Book. Coming up, outrageous couples. You know, the Bible is filled with them. We're going to take a look at some of those outrageous couples, maybe walk away with some lessons for ourselves as well. Then later on, Charlie returns with a look at questions from the Bible. Maybe your question is one of them. Lots to listen for on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Outrageous couples. The Bible is filled with them. Samson and Delilah, Solomon and the Shulamite, Jacob and Leah. Christian psychologist David Clark suggests outrageous couples don't just make mistakes. They make huge, messy mistakes that lead to terrible and lasting damage in their relationships. But it's also true, outrageous couples can make not just good choices, but wonderful, extremely positive choices that lead to significant and lasting rewards in their relationships. Hey, this is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. And before we meet some outrageous couples in the Bible, let's look at ways that we can show the outrageous love of Messiah with our Jewish friends, neighbors, and co-workers. 
Yeshua is not found only in the New Testament. Newsflash, he's everywhere in the Old Testament. Helping you find Yeshua there so you can share him with your Jewish friend is Dr. Michael Rydelnik, who's the editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. Michael? You know, so many times my relatives, people say, well, he was rejected by the rabbis. Why could you believe in Yeshua? Well, it's interesting to me. And then they say, and of course, mostly Gentiles believe in him. So obviously he's not the Jewish Messiah. When you look at Isaiah 49, it says of the Messiah that he is the abhorred one of the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. Uh, He is the rejected one. But it's also interesting, uh, he is going to restore the tribes of Jacob. He is going to restore the protected ones of Israel. And then he also will be a light for the nations. And so it's so interesting to me that it recognizes that the Messiah would be rejected Mm -hmm. by his own people, that he would one day restore his own people, that they will one day come to faith in him, but also that he would be a light for the nations. It's too small a thing for him just to be the one who is the Messiah of Israel. He's also the Messiah of the world. Boy, those are great insights from Dr. Michael Rydelnik. And I encourage you to check out the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy and maybe share it with a friend. David Clark is a Christian psychologist, speaker, and author of 10 books, including the top 10 most outrageous couples in the Bible. He's been in private practice for more than 25 years. David and his wife, Sandy, have four children. Hey, thanks for making the uh, outrageous choice to visit with us today on The Land of the Book, David. John, my pleasure to be here. You know, during my first trip to Israel, I recall writing in my little journal, it is easy to be unholy while walking in the Holy Land. And I suppose in my naivete, I presumed a holy wind of spirituality would blow over me, and I would speak King James English with a British accent and stop sinning the entire time we traveled the land. But Bible characters are real characters just like us. So my question is, why are we surprised that there are so many, quote, outrageous couples mentioned in the Bible? Well, I think one of the reasons, John, is that that we don't hear these stories spoken from the pulpit or talked about. And so people assume, well, these are just wonderful. If they're in the Bible, well, they have to have the greatest marriages and walking with the Lord. And that's simply, as you said, not true. They're as bad as we are. (laughs) And in many cases, worse. I mean, outrageous mistakes, terrible sins. Of course, God was faithful, and we can learn from them. But yeah, we don't hear much about them. I think that's probably the major problem. Early in your book, you write, God could certainly have chosen to feature only couples who were solid, dependable, and balanced. He didn't do that. He did just the opposite. Why do you think this is so? Well, God wants us to learn. We learn from the outrageous. God's saying, look, you, you can mess up this badly. Look at these real people. I mean, awful, off the charts terrible. I, I should write them off. Of course, I don't do that, God says. I work them through. They learn. They grow. I think that's why. He wants to make it very clear to us that uh, it's okay to mess up, and here's how to do it right, and here's how to do it wrong. Hmm. David Clark is a Christian psychologist, speaker, author of 10 books, including the top 10 most outrageous couples in the Bible. You write, an epidemic of sexual sin is sweeping across America and the world. It is striking down millions of good men men who love Jesus Christ and serve him in their local churches and in a variety of other ministries. We're going to fight back using the story of Samson and Delilah. All right, so give us some specific choices that Samson and Delilah made that were outrageous in the negative sense. 
Well, the interesting thing, John, is that you see in the book where, where God lays out two, 3,000 years ago with, with this couple the exact progression of sexual addiction. I mean, God knows what he's talking about. It starts with drifting from God and objectifying women. That's what Samson did. Samson had all the advantages, incredible strength, power, leadership. God was saying, Samson, be my man, but he... Uh, he thought he'd sampled the world, so that's how it started. He got attached to a worthless woman, okay? His wife then betrayed him, you know, big surprise. Then he was living the good life. Things were happening. God was even blessing him, but he was still choosing to sin. And then the end result, of course, everything goes. Uh, killing your relationships uh, and, and everything falls apart. So there was a series. Samson made choice after choice that were awful, selfish. Uh, you, you mentioned this uh, issue of objectifying women. In, in one verse in the story of Samson, he says to his father of a woman, get her for me, for she looks good to me. Explain how this is an illustration of objectifying women. Oh, my goodness. He didn't care about her character. He didn't care about her spirituality. This is the Hugh Hefner playboy philosophy of our society. If she looks good, I want that. God could care less. Now, obviously, you should be attracted to your wife and the woman that you even date. But you know what? We're looking mostly for character. Does she walk with the Lord? Is, is she a solid person? He could have cared less. Of course, we see the selfishness there. His dad should have said, what is the matter with you, you bozo? Number one, it's not my job to get her. And number two, look for the right woman. Of course, dad didn't do that. What does that say to dads out there listening right now who have sons who are of marriageable age? It seems to me there's something loud and clear being shouted. Oh, boy, isn't there? This is a dad's job, not the mom's job. I mean, if you have to step up, fine, but it's the dad's job. I have a son, William, and we went through every young man's battle years ago, and we're talking about specific things, sexual things, women. It's my job to teach him. Of course, I love his mom, the blonde, Sandy, and, and that was great modeling, hopefully, too, but it's my job to teach him. And always, I said, William, whenever you have a question about women or sex, I'm the guy. I'm your man. Call me. I won't tell anybody else. I won't tell your mother because she'd have a fit. <laughs> we, this is a guy thing. We talk and we fix it. So, yeah, men, I don't care how old your, your son is, step up. It's never too late to say, look, let's talk. The top 10 most outrageous couples in the Bible. That's our focus today on The Land and the Book with psychologist and author Dr. David Clark. Your uh, subtitle for this chapter on Samson is Be Crazy in Love, Not Crazy in Lust. Why do so many struggle to know the difference? The breakdown of the family, John, the divorces that have happened. We have people now growing up that have no idea. They don't have any skills or any tools to build a healthy, intimate relationship. Society, and, and by that I mean really Satan because he's running society, he will push you then into, of course, with all of the sexual urges, he'll push you in that direction. So if you've got the hots for somebody, that's really all it takes. Well, that's not how you build a relationship. The Hollywood types... They're married for a year, they're married for two years, they live together, and it falls apart every single time because they don't know how to build a relationship, the Bible, and these couples can teach us exactly how to build a lasting love. You know, but it almost seems like this is a message that we should not need to be sharing inside of the church. I mean, yes, we should, but it shouldn't be such a problem. Be crazy in love, not crazy in lust. My goodness, how could it possibly be that this is an issue in the church? But it is. Boy, it sure is. The numbers are the same. I've been doing my job for almost 30 years now, and, and, and I walk with a lot of pastors, speak in their churches, talk to people across the country, my phone advice sessions, you know what, and it's the same message. I talk to a lot of pastors and their wives. No, no, the numbers are the same. 
in terms of adultery, in terms of pornography, epidemic, tidal wave proportions. So we need to address this head on. Hmm. And, and many churches don't. All right. Now, by contrast, let's focus for a moment on an outrageous couple known for outrageously good choices. You list Joseph and Mary in this category. Why? Oh, man, what a couple. Can you imagine what they went through? And Joseph doesn't get enough credit, I don't think. Of course, Mary finds out, I'm going to be the mother of the Son of God? (laughs) I mean, for heaven's sake. She gets pregnant. Well, there's only one way to get pregnant. Joseph knows that. The whole world knows that. Their village knew that. You know what? But he he believed her. Hmm. You're my wife. No matter what, he stuck with her. Okay, okay, then, then the, talk about bad timing for a census. They've got to travel. She's, she's pregnant, very pregnant, awful, difficult. Of course, then they get there, and you think, well, God could certainly provide a room at the inn. He didn't do that. They hung in there. They had to run for their lives. Of course, uh, you know, crazy guy's going to kill Jesus. We, return to, we need to return to Israel then after running. I mean, time after time, and then raising the Son of God. Oh, my goodness. Their commitment was awesome. They were committed to each other and to the Lord. We can learn a lot. They went through all kinds of things we're never going to have to face. You wrote of Joseph, he had outrageous faith in God and outrageous love for Mary. I think most guys might say, okay, I want what Joseph had. So let me ask you two questions. First, where did Joseph get this outrageous love for Mary? Oh, I, I think it came from God, too. I really do. And that, see, that was tested. If he just found her attractive and our folks think we should get married, okay, that, it wouldn't have gone much farther. And he would have walked away from her. And in that society, he could have put her away. No question. Nobody, nobody questions. It, and she would have been slandered for the rest of her life. He did not do that. He, he followed God's plan. He was a godly man. Of course, he had the visitation from, from the angel. This certainly helped. But, you know, he, he still didn't have to do that. Plenty of people, God speaks to them and they won't do it. Joseph, against all those odds, and he would have been looked at by every single Jewish person that knew him as, what is the matter with you yeah. being with this woman? Oh, but you know what? No, no, he didn't care. So I think, I think God was really the source of his love for Mary, no question. But that, that brings to mind the question, where did Joseph get this kind of outrageous faith in God? Boy, it's, well, it's a good question. You know, it, it must have been from his upbringing, his, his, I guess his basic character. We don't know much about that in his past. But what we do know is that it was clearly there, and it was really a, te- a massive test for him. And he came through. Not to mention the fact that as, as, a, as a man raising a son, uh, you know, that, that, is, that is God himself, oh, for heaven's sake. I mean, how do you do that? Yeah. He was very, very solid. David Clark has been in private practice for more than 25 years. He and his wife, Sandy, have four children. Uh, Take us to another outrageous couple in the Bible that has life lessons for us. I'll let you take your pick. Boy, I go with Nabal and Abigail, one of my favorites. Talk about an outrageous story of faith going against culture, risking her life. Abigail married to this miserable, abusive, nasty man, Nabal, narcissistic to the extreme stiff David and his men, and David was going to wipe out the entire household. Abigail, I mean, in that day, a woman had no rights. You couldn't do anything on your own. She did everything on her own with God's leading, and she got the provisions to David and his men, and he spared her life. God takes Nabal out. Awesome. In fact, I, I, I love this story so much. I wrote a whole book about it, or based on it, called Enough is Enough, How to Leave an Abusive Relationship. I mean, this mm. is a very, very strong message from God. You don't have to stay with an abusive man. You don't. 
One of the lessons for guys that you took from a couple in this book is dwell on your wife and her beauty physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Why isn't that more intuitive? Oh, man. Uh, guys are dense, John, just dense. <laughs> and, and we're distracted, and we tend to think of ourselves. You know, you know if she just meet my needs, everything would be fine. God doesn't say that. We see in Solomon and Shulamite, the Shulamite woman, he was just crazy about her, and he focused on her, and he thought about her. When they weren't together, he thought about her and, and truly fantasized in a healthy way about his wife, his woman, and how great she is. Boy, we have, I think we all have to be taught that by our dads, by the Bible, by the pastor. We should have it instinctively. No, we don't. The we number... tend to woo the woman, yeah. date her, and then once she marries us, game over. Done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is not right. So speak to uh, middle-aged couples, perhaps, for whom some of the shine has worn off, and uh, he, he's dealing with some weight issues, and she's maybe got some gray hair or wrinkles, and uh, you know they're struggling with this very thing. You have described my wife and I just about perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It becomes, I mean, there has always been a physical attraction between the blonde and I, Sandy and I, and that still remains true. If you saw my picture, you'd understand that. (laughs) Just kidding. Anyway, we have physical chemistry, but what's more important now is our spiritual bond, and that's where I think you have to start. You share Christ. You pray together. you, You serve God in the church. We'll listen to Moody together. Look, this is how we bond together in Christ. That's incredibly powerful. And then we just make the right choices, spending time, making out. It's not just about you know, the, the whole physical intimacy thing going all the way. It's just it's affection. And I take her out on dates. I ask her, would you like to go out on a date with me? Well, the kids are all gone. Now we can do it. Well, she says yes, but women like to be asked. Hmm. So it's just those little things like that that just continue to keep us you know, connected and in love. We're talking with Dr. David Clark, who's written the top 10 most outrageous couples in the Bible. There's a link to his book at our website and his ministry as well featured there. You'll want to check it out at thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. These are great stories, and I want to appreciate your taking the time to share them with us, David. Oh, John, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Up next, it's Charlie Dyer with a look at your Bible questions here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for being a part of today's edition of The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar, a former pastor, a guy who loves the Word and loves to answer your questions. Charlie, you kind of get revved up when these questions come in, don't you? Oh, I love questions, John, because it lets you know where people's hearts are. And uh, if you speak to their heart, uh, they're going to pay attention and they're going to apply the truth to their life. All right. Pay attention, guys. You ready for this first question? (laughs) It takes us to the book of 1 Samuel which seems to show confusion in David's interactions with Saul. This listener says, David went to play his harp and serve as Saul's armor bearer in 1 Samuel 16, but then in the next chapter, Saul fails to recognize him. What's going on? Yeah, to me, that story actually has the ring of reality. Uh, When David was chosen as a musician and armor bearer for King Saul, it was not a full-time position. There's two details in the text that show that. In in 1623, it was only when the evil spirit came on Saul that David would be summoned. And then second, in 1715, we're told David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now that suggests to me David was a part-time employee, if you will, in Saul's royal court. 
He was available when summoned both to play music and to carry Saul's armor. In fact, in 1621, it says David became one of Saul's armor bearers, suggesting there were several who rotated through that position. Now, here's an illustration that might help. In Saul's royal court, just like in our own White House, there are scores, even hundreds of advisors and servants and visitors. The leader focuses on those he considers most important, most significant, or, or most useful. But unless he genuinely cares for others, and that doesn't fit Saul's personality, most leaders simply view the other people coming through the office as little more than nameless faces, you know, interchangeable parts who come and go. David might have walked alongside Saul carrying his armor or come into the throne carrying his harp, but Saul likely paid little attention to him. And that's why when Saul encounters David again in a totally different context, you know, facing Goliath and the Philistines, he has no clue who David is and has to ask, whose son are you, young man? Well, that's an interesting question, and we've got a whole bunch of them here on today's edition of The Land and the Book, such as this one. Another question about Saul. Where was Saul's capital? Where is it listed officially? Uh, Saul's capital was Gibeah. It's one of the towns allotted to the tribe of Benjamin back in Joshua 18. Now, the town had a checkered history, and in Judges 19, it's the men of Gibeah who committed evil that nearly wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. But that otherwise gruesome chapter also helps with some details to let us know where Gibeah was located. Remember, the, the, the Levite and his concubine uh, are coming home from Bethlehem. Uh, they approach Jebus, later Jerusalem. Uh, it says the day was almost gone, and not wanting to spend the night there, the Levite decides to press on. He says, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah. Well, Gibeah is about three miles north of Jerusalem. Ramah is another two miles beyond that. But the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. And later in the book of Samuel, Saul's anointed king, and following that event, in 1 Samuel 10, 26, it says, Saul went to his home in Gibeah. That's how we know Gibeah was his hometown. And mm. once he was established as king, the town became identified with him. So by 1 Samuel 11, it's now known as Gibeah of Saul. Uh, one last quirky detail, John. I love quirky details. Yeah. The site of ancient Gibeah is known today. It's a hill along the old main roadway north of Jerusalem. Now, it's now surrounded by modern suburbs of Jerusalem itself. Uh, the Arabic name of the hill is Tel El Ful, F-U-L, which means hill of beans. So I can always remember the Arabic name of Saul's hometown because Saul himself was a fool and he never amounted to a hill of beans. <laughs> Very good, Charlie. Here's a question from Peter. He says, I've noticed that at several places in the New Testament, Matthew 6, 13, John 17, 15, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, some versions of the Bible say evil, while some say evil one. I'm curious, is the Greek ambiguous? <laughs> this is a case where the Greek happens to be ambiguous. It literally has the evil in those passages, but the word can refer to evil in general or to an evil person, meaning Satan in particular. In Matthew 5, 39, Jesus uses the word to refer to a human, and Paul seems to do the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 3. In John 17, 15, John seems to apply it to specifically Satan. So in Matthew 6, 13, when Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one, both make sense in the context. I tend to personally think it's referring to Satan there, the evil one, uh, but I also need to admit that either translation can make good sense. Now, I remember someone once saying, you know, knowing Greek and Hebrew helps resolve apparent Bible difficulties, and in many cases, that's true. But there are instances where a phrase can be just as ambiguous in Greek or Hebrew hmm. as it is in English. And in those cases, we just need to search the rest of God's word with greater diligence, make sure uh, we can try to find parallels to help illuminate the meaning, or 
become more humble as we go to the Lord in prayer, asking Him to help us understand His Word more clearly. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager looking at an email here from Norm, who listens over WSEW in Maine and New Hampshire. He says, uh, The Land and the Book is one of the few programs that can keep my attention for an hour. (laughs) Always interesting, varied, and insightful. Thank you. Well, thanks for those kind words, Norm. And we do love uh, hearing where you're listening. Uh, So thanks for including that in your email to us with your question at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Now, let's get to uh, Norm's question. Please give me your thoughts on Luke 16 regarding the differences between paradise or Abraham's side and heaven. Now that Jesus has opened heaven for us, does paradise still exist? And do just or God-fearing people currently reside there? Is this where the Catholic Church gets its doctrine of purgatory? Yeah, and we don't have a huge amount of information on the subject, so I I need to be a bit tentative here. Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side only occurs one time in Scripture, in Luke 16, and Jesus pictures it as a place of blessing and comfort and peace. It's where Lazarus the beggar is taken by angels at the time of his death, and apparently it's where Old Testament believers like Abraham are said to be residing. Now, paradise is the place where Jesus took the thief on the cross the day they both died. This day you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, Revelation also tells us it's the location of the tree of life. And uh, we're also told in Revelation, the tree of life's in the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, But if I put those pieces together, I think paradise and the tree of life are part of the new Jerusalem. Uh, That's also where God, the Father, Jesus, the angels, and departed Old Testament and New Testament saints are said to dwell in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. So in light of all that, It looks like since the death of Jesus, believers are taken to the new Jerusalem to dwell. I remember in John 14, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, uh, that you may be where I am. So if we're going to be with Jesus, if Jesus is with the Father in this heavenly house, then that's where believers today go when they die. Uh, What happens to Old Testament saints? Well, it's less clear, but I think that Hebrews 12 passage says New Jerusalem is also the location of spirits of righteous men made perfect, which I believe refers to Old Testament saints. In terms of that purgatory, I believe the Catholic concept of purgatory comes in part from 2 Maccabees chapter 12. In that passage, uh, uh, Judas Maccabeus takes up a collection to send to Jerusalem to provide a sin offering for those who had sinned and died. And it says he made provision to set free from their sin those who had died, uh, suggesting that actions on the part of the living can impact the outcome for those who have already died. But most Protestants, and, and I include myself here, don't believe Second Maccabees is or ought to be part of the canonical Bible. And that's why I don't believe in purgatory. Sharon says, thank you very much for your podcast. It's the first thing I listen to on Saturday mornings. Since there is so much information, I always listen twice. (laughs) Thank you, Sharon, for your diligence. And by the way, if you've never checked out that podcast, it's waiting for you right now at thelandandthebook.org. A great way to share us with your friends, by the way, that podcast at thelandandthebook.org. Now, Sharon is very curious about the whole sacrificial system, its process. She says, did a person bring their animal offering to the gate and give it to the priest? Or did they slit its throat and then give it to the priest? Or did they go into the courtyard to the brazen altar, slit its throat, and then have the priest prepare it for the brazen altar? I need a more complete picture of how the offering was made because I'm teaching about the tabernacle, and this question was actually asked. I appreciate your help. 
Yeah, well, in Leviticus 1, it sounds initially as if the worshiper was to present the sacrifice at the entrance to the temple of meeting, lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering, and then slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And then the text says the priests were to bring the blood from the sacrifice and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. However, the Talmud suggests that it's the priest who actually killed the animal. Alfred Edersheim uh, did some great works. He's a, a Jewish believer, uh, and one of his works was called The Temple, Its Ministry and Services, and that's available online, explains it this way. He says, under ordinary circumstances, all public sacrifices were slain by the priests. Uh, so uh, uh, the death of the sacrifice was only a means toward an end, and that end was the shedding and sprinkling of the blood. And since that was to be done by the priest, uh, the priest was the one who actually was slaying the animal as well. And that's a look at the questions that have come into our inbox. And if you didn't hear yours, maybe it's because you didn't email us. You can do that now, though. The land and the book at moody.edu is how you connect. Again, the land and the book at moody.edu. Now, don't go away because this last segment we're about to enjoy together is a favorite for many. It's Charlie Dyer's devotional taking us to a passage in Scripture and a place in the Holy Land. Stick around, it's next on The Land and the Book. Some people just do celebrations right. I mean, they got the right food, the right decorations, the right company, the right look, the right feel, and it's really a great thing to be a part of. But what about celebrations in the Bible? There's a lot to learn, and we're about to head there in a devotional from Charlie Dyer next. Charlie, we're in the middle of a three-week look at celebrations in Israel, but uh, based in the book of Nehemiah, I don't see anything about the uh, Feast of Yom Kippur there, the celebration that uh, we're about to talk about. Help me with this gap. Ah, uh, the gap is there, and uh, the amazing part is it's there, but it's hidden. It's the elephant in the room, so we're going to be looking at it, John. Okay, we'll grab a hold of that tusk and see what happens in your devotional. But first, we want to pause for a Holy Land experience. If you're new to the program, it's a moment we just take and listen to somebody like you who's been to Israel and wants to share this with us. Hi, my name is Maureen, and I'm from Carmel, Indiana, and this is my Holy Land experience. Um, I went to Israel on a missionary internship back in 1982, and I worked on a kibbutz for six weeks. And while I was there, a family on the kibbutz adopted me, and I became kind of a part of their family while I was there. And they had a little boy. His name was Ron, and um, one day he fell and he hurt himself. And when he got up, he yelled, Abba, 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 Abba. And as a young believer, I was very young in Christ at the time, and I had come from a broken home where I didn't have a loving father. And so now, when I pray, I always pray, Abba, 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 hear my prayer. Yom Kippur, what exactly is this celebration all about? Charlie, we talked about it a moment ago. Uh, enlighten us. Okay, thanks, John. Well, this is the second in our three-week series of devotionals on the Jewish fall festivals, and it takes us to Jerusalem at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. The city's walls have been rebuilt, but the city itself remains largely a pile of uninhabited rubble. Last week, we watched as the people gathered for Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. Well, today's gathering is for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And at first, you might be somewhat surprised and maybe even a little disappointed because Yom Kippur is missing. The Day of Atonement seems to have disappeared from Nehemiah 8. But don't be alarmed. 
I think there's a good reason for its apparent absence. The focus of Nehemiah 8 is on the people. In fact, the Hebrew word am, people, or kol ha'am, all the people, is used 15 times in the chapter. The first festival, Rosh Hashanah, involved the people. And the third festival of the month, Sukkot, or Tabernacles, also involved the people. But the second festival, Yom Kippur, primarily involved activities performed by the high priest. Leviticus 16 goes into great detail on the activities to be performed by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But the only commands for the people were to deny themselves and do no work. That is, they were to fast and treat the day as a Sabbath of rest, eat nothing and do nothing, as the high priest went on their behalf before the very presence of God himself to offer atonement for their sin. Nehemiah 8 skips over the Day of Atonement because it was a day when the people really didn't do anything apart from fasting. All the work on that most sacred and holy day was being done for them by the high priest. And as God made clear in Leviticus 16, the purpose was for atonement to be made for all the sins of the Israelites. Having just heard God's word read to them, including the blessings and cursings of the covenant in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the people must have realized that the destruction of the nation came about because of their ancestors' disobedience and failure to observe the righteous standards set up by God. Now, I say all of that because of what Nehemiah adds at the very beginning of the next chapter. The Day of Atonement is followed by the Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll explore next week. But Nehemiah then describes a fourth event that took place in this particular month. Listen to the first three verses of chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and then spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time of celebration and joy, just as was Rosh Hashanah. But it's as if the people kept coming back to God's holiness, his righteous standards, and the realization that it was the sin of their forefathers that brought about Israel's destruction. And now, having just watched as the priests had gone once again into the Holy of Holies with the blood of an animal that had been sacrificed for their sin, they internalized the reality of what this meant for them at that very moment in time. The prayer that follows in Nehemiah 9 is an amazing rehearsal of all God had done for the nation Israel. It also acknowledges how the people had become arrogant and stiff-necked, refusing to submit to God and obey Him. Because of His great patience and compassion, God didn't bring immediate judgment. But because of their continuing rejection, He did finally hand the people over to the surrounding nations. Finally, in verse 33, the people acknowledge one great truth— God had been just and acted faithfully. It was the people who had sinned and done wrong. The rest of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10 becomes an agreement signed by both the leaders and the people acknowledging their sin and renewing their relationship to God and His Word. So how do these events that took place on the 24th day of the seventh month relate to the Day of Atonement, which happened exactly two weeks earlier? I'd like to suggest the following. 
Having heard the word of God on the first two days of the month, they now understood the spiritual significance of the Day of Atonement when the high priest carried out his duties on the tenth day of the month. But before they could act on their newfound knowledge, they first had to prepare for and celebrate Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. Throughout that seven-day period, they were still thinking about a holy God and their sin. God was patient and faithful and loving, but he was also holy. And sin led to sorrow and judgment and eventually separation and death. And yet God in his grace had provided a means of payment, a substitute that could take their place. And once Sukkot was over, the people wanted to circle back to that reality and make it personal in their own lives. The prayer that's prayed in chapter 9 focuses directly on events that are described in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And then it continues on to summarize Israel's sin and rebellion during their time in the land. Through it all, they acknowledge that God has always been great, mighty, awesome, faithful, just, compassionate, and patient. They and their ancestors have been the ones who were disobedient, rebellious, and arrogant, stiff-necked, and stubborn. God provided a way to atone for sin, but it required the people to humble themselves, acknowledge their sin and rebellion, and accept the provision offered by God. The inhabitants of Jerusalem saw this truth illustrated on the Day of Atonement. It's been presented to us in a more direct form in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God has done the work. We just need to acknowledge and confess our sin and turn to Him in faith. The Day of Atonement always took place on the 10th day of the 7th month. But on October 30, 445 B.C., the 24th day of the 7th month, the people of Judah confessed their sin and made their own personal covenant with God. They came to Him on His terms to experience His forgiveness. So how about you? As the Day of Atonement slips by for another year, have you accepted the atoning sacrifice God has provided for your sin? Not the temporary atonement provided through those lambs in the past, but the eternal sacrifice provided by Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God, when He shed His blood on the cross of Calvary to pay the ultimate penalty for your sin. If you've never placed your trust for salvation in Jesus, why not do so today? Our prayer is that the words of Charlotte Elliott, penned nearly two centuries ago, would also be your words today, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Maybe as you listen to Charlie, you're saying, that's me. Uh, You know, I hear this program, I hear other great Christian music and and things, and yet I've never really come to that place in my life where I have asked forgiveness, this thing that Charlie's talking about. Never never sought the atonement of God. What do you do? Well, why don't you talk to a friend now at this toll-free number I'm going to give you, 888-NEED-HIM. Uh, it's a volunteer who will answer and be happy to pray with you and uh, help you know Jesus personally. That can happen for you today when you call 888-NEED-HIM. That's it for today's edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.